This is the third Sunday of Epiphany. <clears throat> Last Sunday I preached about vocation, and I'm going to sort of continue in that thread today. We have two readings where the word repentance is mentioned uh, in uh, the reading from the book of Jonah and in the gospel. And this is another demonstration that the, the idea of repentance shows up frequently in the biblical readings throughout the year. With great uh, emphasis in Advent, uh, it comes in the Sundays after Epiphany, and great emphasis in Lent. And then when we get back to the Green Sundays, uh, the same thing again. So I thought I'd talk a little bit about what repentance is related to. And when I wrote my sermon this week, it was, I was uh, beginning to write it uh, on the day that Marcus Borg died which is January 21st. So uh, I have a quotation from him about this, and uh, I hope you find it of interest. Um, I talk about repentance a lot or try to define it in ways that don't sound like some sawdust-kicking preacher about the, the necessity to do this, um, but it's, it is necessary, and we need to understand what it means. And I often talk about the words that are used in the New Testament, metanoia and uh, epistrophe. Uh, and those are important concepts that we should remember all the time. But uh, Borg has some things to say that are good. And then I'm going to juxtapose his quote against something that may sound like it's contradicting him. But uh, that's okay, because it's not either or, it's both and. Uh, Marcus Borg is a very important figure in the Episcopal Church and outside it as well. He was a biblical scholar and for many years taught at Oregon State uh, University. He's married to an Episcopal priest, and uh, he said when he married her, he hadn't had that in mind. But as it turned out, uh, it happened. So uh, Borg has made a huge contribution in the, in the area of bringing people who have uh, been estranged from the practice of Christianity uh, back into the life of the church because of his way of ex being able to explain certain things. I don't always agree with him, but I think he was an extremely important figure in the last 20 plus 25 years in the Episcopal Church. He was one of the first people to, he was part of that group that were doing, once again, we now call the third quest for the historical Jesus, and he wrote a great book in 1985 called Jesus, A New Vision, which was very, very helpful to a lot of people, and uh, he had many things to say about this. He belonged also to that group, I can't remember the name of it now, um, that uh, that, that had the, the sayings of Jesus in black, in gray, or in pink, or red, and so forth, about which ones were authentic, and they graded them on an annual basis. That was where, in some of that stuff, I got off the bus. But back on for some things, and particularly this book I'll read the quotation from called The Heart of Christianity, and it's an excellent book. And it was very influential for a lot of people. And he was concerned in this book, in this area of repentance, to talk about 
uh, often the center of repentance for many of us is the idea of some internal and introspective guilt that we have to get over, and uh, when we repent, we then uh, get right with God. And he would say this, Repentance in the New Testament has an additional nuance of meaning besides the two words that I talk about all the time. The Greek roots of the word combine to mean go beyond the mind that you have been given and acquired, go beyond the mind shaped by culture to the mind that you have in Christ. And what he's talking about there has two parts, in my opinion. One is to uh, play down. That's probably not the best way to say that, but to uh, not raise to the center the idea of introspective guilt, but to see it in perspective, going beyond the mind that you have. Now, the culture we live in now has no difficulty in poo-pooing introspective guilt. Right? They don't, you know. We've been living in the therapeutic culture for, gee whiz, about three or four about 40 or 50 years at least. In 1967, Philip Reif wrote a book, R-E-I-F-F, called The Triumph of the Therapeutic. And in it, he defined uh, well-being uh, or he, uh, that mental health was a manipulatable sense of well-being so that we were able to somehow strive for that and uh, that would fix everything and we'd be hunky-dory. So what I'm going to talk a little bit about is to say uh, Borg is completely right, but it is also important to recover some sense in our culture of remorse. Being sorry. And how we see that connecting to uh, moving once again towards spiritual wholeness. You'll get in the sermon, I'll repeat myself more than once, but the fact of the matter is that uh, what, what it is that I'm going to suggest is that each of us needs to be reconverted over and over again. And in fact, one of the reasons that that's important is that we belong to a liturgical church that celebrates the same seasons and reads the same readings on a three-year cycle and does the same things because we believe that there is some healing power in this repetitiveness, that it has an influence on the way in which we are allowed to access, once again, uh, God's reconciling power internally and externally as a commu community and in our relational life. So another quotation I'm going to read to you it's from a book I read about in 1991 <coughs> called The Passion of the Western Mind by Richard Tarnas. He spent a lot of time down at the Esalen Institute and other places that are not usually my great favorites. But uh, he, it's, it's an absolutely wonderful book, and it's a tour de force about uh, Western culture and about the triumph of the Western mind, and um, said with great clarity and balance and uh, up-to-date, uh, one of the figures in at the Essel Institute many years ago was a guy named Fritz Perls. You may have heard of him. And he was in a group, a group session once at the Esalen Institute, and a guy was sitting in the group with him, and he turned to Fritz Perls and he said, um, <clears throat> do you have a match? And Fritz Perl said, yes, I do. 
<laughs> if you want something, ask for it, okay? It's like my dear mother-in-law, God rest her soul. Is there coffee? Yeah. Right? <laughs> Do you want a cup of coffee? Well, I'll make you one. Or what? In any case, he quotes in this book, uh, he was, in one of the chapters, he was talking about some of this stuff in Western thought, and he quoted from the Mexican poet and writer, diplomat Octavio Paz, uh, who wrote this in Spanish, but I'm going to read it to, in, in, to you in English. The examination of conscience and the remorse that accompanies it, which is a legacy of Christianity, has been and is the single most powerful remedy against the ills of our civilization. So I don't know whether you believe that or not, but he's on to something. Because it's uh, the ability to see we're headed in the wrong direction. We've got to head in another direction. It doesn't always guarantee that individuals or groups will head in that direction, but at least it's possible to express some degree of remorse for not doing so. My own opinion is, is that the, uh, the news of the last three or four years in this country has, uh, gives us ample cause for the necessity of remorse as a people, right? Sometimes we have to remember something. Different groups and individuals sense or look at the same events and see them quite differently, right? So if you're in a group uh, of people, and most of us hang around, by the way, with people like ourselves. That's what we mostly do, right? Sometimes not. Some of us a little less. Some of us pretty much exclusively. So that means uh, somebody like me might want to suggest something like, um, you know, we've made enormous progress in race relations in this country over the last 50 years. I think things have improved very much, <coughs> right? <clears throat> and if I were an African-American, I would have a different story to tell about that. I would say the last 50 years may have provided some progress, but there is great work to be done. Great work to be done. And if my parents were still alive, just saying that would mean I'm being an agitator. <laughs> right? Ad agitating. And we need to just, let's just get along and quit this. So some degree of remorse is important, and uh, it's necessary for spiritual progress. So if you read any biographies of the great spiritual thinkers in our culture, in our Western culture, and uh, in other cultures as well, as it turns out, uh, usually conversion has four parts. In other words, maybe the most famous one where you can find this pretty distinctly are two places, St. Paul and Augustine in his Confessions. And they describe four things that have occurred internally with them and then ultimately the ability to express it outwardly to others. 
The first thing is that when this process begins, you feel some sort of disorientation. You're knocked off your pins. You have an emotional, mental, and spiritual crisis. You know, the word in Greek, crisis, means uh, a, more, a point of decision. That's what the word means. So you reach a crisis and you feel disoriented. You don't know what to do. You feel, yeah, I had somebody say to me years ago when I was speaking with him, he said, have you ever felt yes and no at the same time? Have you ever had that feeling? Well, it's not comfortable. And so that's part of the disorientation that occurs in this process. And it drives the individual to then begin to bring together uh, elements from one's past. A reflection about your own personal history. In the recovery movement, they might, they might call that a searching and fearless moral inventory. Right? A real hard look. And so you begin to do that, and in the course of this historical um, reflection, and perhaps because of your spiritual longing, you begin to feel some species of forgiveness for failures and a sense of God's mercy. So when I... Um, Think of, of uh, you hear me say all the time in sermons, when God's mercy and God's judgment collide, God's mercy trumps God's judgment. Because it says in the Bible that God is love. So that's the first principle, a default position. And then finally you begin to perceive the intervention and call from some enabling other, from God. And you begin to see now, how do I change the direction? Father Keating says, um, repentance is changing the direction where you're, for where you're looking for happiness, right? Some other way uh, more oriented towards God. So it sometimes means a pretty radical reorientation. And other times, if you've been uh, in this process before, you understand uh, that it occurs over and over again. That's why in uh, our tradition, it now uh, for the last 40 years or more, we have read frequently through the year the baptismal covenant. Because that contains a template that you can place over your spiritual progress. And that's an important kind of a thing. So here's what can also occur during the whole process of repentance and conversion. God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh. It says, by the way, in the book that Nineveh was a big city and it took three days to walk across it. And maybe Ernest has been to Nineveh, but I think you can walk across it in less than a day. It's about a mile and a half long or a bit. So uh, it's, not, it's not that big. But he says, you need to go to, jo to Nineveh, and you need to tell these people who have strayed from uh, God's ways, you need to tell them that God is mightily displeased, and there's going to be trouble and plenty of it, unless you repent, unless you change your mind. 
unless you reorient yourself in a, in a proper and godly direction. So he shows up, and see, somewhat reluctantly, by the way, because that's where we get the story of the big fish and a whole lot of stuff, but he gets uh, vomited out onto the beach, <laughs> and he walks into Nineveh in the story. And he, said, he, he prophesies, and he said, unless you repent, God is going to destroy this city, and you people are going to be punished. It's going to be a mess. And so... They listen to him. And they repent. And they wear the external signs of their repentance. Sackcloth and ashes and all of this stuff. And they say they're going to change their ways. Now, if you were Jonah, would you be pleased or would you be like Jonah? Furious! Furious because the people of Nineveh did not get their just desserts. So think about uh, how you feel when it appears that somebody who deserves punishment gets off the hook. You know? And Rini says, I'm sorry, I'm going to change the direction of what I'm doing. Now, there's a big danger in this. We all have to be careful because those of us who've been in the helping professions for any amount of time know that some people will come to you and say something like, in my relationships or in my marriage or in my, the workplace, uh, there's somebody who has done some terrible injury to me and other people. And they've come to me and they've told me that they're very, very sorry and they're not going to do it again. And they don't know what got into them. And the only thing they're asking is to be accepted back. To return to the status quo ante. The situation before you had, you, 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 the thing happened. So when we talk about things like this, uh, there's often the temptation for many to say, oh, sure, okay, back. And we know that in ordinary life, uh, it's not always possible to do that because you can't trust people. Because elsewhere in the scriptures it says you have to bear the fruit that befits repentance. So you have to demonstrate in your life for a period of time that it appears that you're changing direction and that you're doing what you said you were going to do. So forgiveness is not just cheap grace. It has to have some kind of integrity behind all of that. You know, this is so easy to say and so hard to do. It really is. But in this particular case, it's an example of how we feel when somebody who doesn't appear to uh, deserve it gets off the hook in the story. In the Gospels, in more than one place, Jesus is saying stuff like, uh, the, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going to get into the kingdom of God before you do. How do you like that? 
Because if you believe that you've lived your life in such a way as to have dotted the I's and crossed the T's, it just seems to be an intolerable thing, you know? So this, this reading from Jonah, I think, is uh, in one sense, Jonah now plays every man. It's what we have to go through when we understand uh, somebody is the recipient of God's grace and God's mercy, and it's very difficult. By the way, my favorite passage in, in, in uh, Jonah, I can't quote it precisely from memory, is God says to Jonah, did what, do you think this great city, Nineveh, in which people do not know their right hand from their left and also have many cattle? That I shouldn't let them off the hook, right? I don't think the cattle had any influence, but there it is. <laughs> So the thing I'm trying to say today is that when we think about repentance and conversion, it's both an internal process but also an external one, and that it never ceases. It's always part of the way in which we practice the spiritual life, and we give up to God the things that we're, uh, you know, those things which we have done and those things which we ought to have done, right, in the old liturgy, that we uh, say we're sorry for that. Alan Jones, in his book, Reimagining Christianity, says conversion means having the heart open to and sometimes broken by new possibilities. So there may be times in our life when we have to be open to having our heart broken. Sometimes when that's true, uh, it's a great occasion for repentance. So this week, uh, see if you can bring the light of God's grace and love on your habits of being and relating, and ask God to help you uh, reorient yourself where it is necessary. Understand that God is present as an internal resource to enlighten and strengthen you. See how you can go beyond the mind you have been given, and to see more clearly God's purposes for you. Amen. Amen.